Hello and welcome to Vigilant Radio. I'm Dan Cowder. I'm Marty Gleason. And we have got quite a show for you tonight. We're going to be talking all about uh, education and uh, what's been happening with it recently and hopefully uh, what some solutions are. Uh, Tony is currently out of town for the next two weeks um, and Nick will be joining us tomorrow night. We're going to record this um, in a two-night, two-segment sort of a thing. So I'm here with Marty tonight. Nick's going to be in tomorrow night. Marty, how you doing? Dan, I'm okay. I'm yeah. a little bit, yeah, I'm a little bit under the weather, but I'm uh, I'm getting better. Got a got a lot of stuff to do. Got the day off tomorrow. Like, uh, you have the day off tomorrow. You when you work the same job for 17 years, you get a lot of vacation time. At least you do for now. Like we'll see how that changes by 27 by 2018. Mm, true enough. True enough. So, education. Education. Marty, have you ever been to school? In fact, I have been to a number of schools. Goodness I am, me. I am allegedly very well educated. I am better educated than the current resident of the White House. Goodness. I have a master's degree. Great. He doesn't. You must yeah. have the biggest diploma. You mu- it must be the size of your wall. I have the best diplomas. Is I it have the great University? Diplomas. No, because uh, I graduated from kindergarten and I recognized a bad deal when I saw it. Ouch. So I know I uh, shouldn't. I feel like I'm punching down at people who like fell for it. That's but, a like, burn. Yeah, that's, that's I apologize. That burn me. left it more well done than a Trump steak. Ooh, 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 ooh. <sighs> Let's put some ketchup on that steak and keep on going. Yowza. So education and student debt. Um, one of the big, uh, issues on everybody's kitchen table today, uh, if they've been to school themselves in the last decade and a half, two decades, if they have any kids that are even hypothetically going to be going into college, um, is where's the money going to come from? Because obviously tuition has been going up and up and up. Um, you know, there's a, there's a popular anecdote that used to be able to pay for college just by, Working a summer job, and that would cover your room and board and your tuition. And if you had some hustle, you might actually have some money to spend on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, attempting anything like that, trying to pay for tuition um, with a summer job, is laughable. Is the word that I would yeah. use? Is your summer job at Bain Capital? <laughs> yeah. Then you can probably pay for your for at least a semester, right? Right. Um, so. The current administration, Cylons that they are, they have mm-hmm. a plan. Oh, and it's as about as good as <laughs> the plan that Ron Moore developed um, and then had to flesh out in a you know filler movie that was done called The Plan. Uh-huh. But um, I am not entirely sure that this is the brainchild of Betsy DeVos. No. Uh, School choice cheerleader and soulless human being, mm. if she's even human. Tell me how you really um, feel, though. Oh, uh, well, if I did, um, <laughs> I would let you know that I think that <laughs> oh, if, you are, if you've never gone to school or paid or taken out a student loan in your entire life and that your fortune is built on a scam like Amway and your brother is a mercenary for hire that somehow wants to do God's work by shooting brown people and take the job of American fighting forces, uh, but privatizing them. If you think that you have any business in public life, you're sorely mistaken. And also, she needed the help of Pence, I call my wife mother, uh, because she couldn't get ratified. The, The only cabinet secretary in the history of the nation to do so. So, well, uh, what right I feel then. about <laughs> what I feel about Betsy DeVos is pretty clear. She has no business anywhere near the Department of Education, um, and she should go back to whatever dominionist hovel that she crawled out from under, um, and go back and and she should probably end up reading A Handmaid's Tale and not root for the nation of Gilead. I'll just leave it there. All right, so. <laughs> I did all that without cursing, too. You did. I'm impressed. I know. My goodness. So, as low as you think of Betsy DeVos, you Mm -hmm. don't think that the education plan is her brainchild? 
No, because she's not smart enough to come up with something like this. Um, I mean, her entire idea is to turn schools into madrasas, um, which is not a fair comparison and is vaguely Islamophobic on my part. So I immediately apologize for that analogy. But she wants to turn them into a better way to describe it is to turn them into dominionist education camps. She wants schools to do God's will on earth. That's not the role of a school. That's at best the role of a seminary, um, but not the role of a K through eight school or a high school. Um, it was certainly not the responsibility of my college that I went to. Mm. Um, you could argue that it was the role of the university I attended, but that's because it was a large Catholic one. Okay. So <laughs> what is, what is the plan? Betsy DeVos's brainchild or not? What is the plan? So the, the plan the Trump administration has put forward is to eliminate all of the income-driven student loan repayment plans uh, and cap it at 12.0% of the borrower's income, uh, forgiving it after 15 years, an elimination of the public uh, excuse me, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Act, which wipes away all federal student loan debt if they work uh, if they make uh, 120 qualifying payments. Um, this was actually enacted by President George W. Bush. Um, for that. Uh, and this is uh, attacked by, oh, they're also going to cut Pell Grants, which is uh, typically for first-year college students, uh, young people of color who are trying to go to school. And they are looking to eliminate child care accesses and the child care subsidy for people you know, paying for daycare to go to school. Mm. Um, the yeah. rationale for that being I don't know. People don't deserve to get to get educated. Like the Washington Post uh, Institute. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> You're gonna have to redo all that because I coughed into it too. It, that nobody cares. Um, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, eliminating this this debt um, because and eliminating the childcare access means parents in school, uh, which is a subsidy program that helps pay for daycare for young people who are in school or actually non-traditional students who are in school but paying for daycare to go to school because, and I quote, this type of program does not fit the ethos of the department's core mission. So I guess the department's core mission is not educating people, not letting people get educated. Um, the American Enterprise Institute argues that you don't need public service loan forgiveness if you have income-based repayment because um, – it, you're double dipping. You're going to get everything forgiven in 15, 20 years and you're paying a lower rate and somehow you're going to pay an even lower rate um, if there's no public service loan forgiveness, which uh, full disclosure, I am a be I'm trying to become a beneficiary of the public service loan forgiveness. Yeah, because I've been a Cook County juvenile probation officer for 17 years and only in 2007 did this program start for me uh, and Shortly thereafter, I've got a proving that I've made the number of uh, required payments has been incredibly difficult. So, so do we know if, um, like, if they were to get rid of this public service loan forgiveness, would currently existing, um, would people who have their uh, their repayments currently in this plan to be forgiven after ten years, given one hundred twenty um, qualifying payments, would people be grandfathered in? Or would this just be, if you're a month shy, then you're out of luck? Do we know The that? way it's reading right now, if you're a month shy, you're out of luck. Mm, mm, uh, mm. Because uh, and you cannot look at this given the Republican hatred of public servants um, and of public service infrastructure that Steve Bannon has, basic, has said repeatedly it's his goal to destroy. Yes. You cannot look at this as not being an attack on – on people who do community service, who do not community, do their community a service by working for the public sector. Do you um, think that these um, these public institutions, these public job sectors, would be able to pull in the necessary number of people if this public service loan forgiveness were to evaporate? What do you mean? Like, we'd somehow be able to make our payments? Well, no, no, no. I mean, like, you know, you have a certain number of people that you need to be in a certain um, job market in order to be filling mm -hmm. a, a good number of the jobs that are out there. 
right? Let's say that a city needs, and I'm just coming up with this number, 10,000 therapists, right? Since, okay, right. Um, since I'm a therapist, I'll just use that as an right. example. So if a city needs 10,000 therapists, and we're getting, let's say, 9,000 right now, do you think that getting rid of this public service loan forgiveness would decrease the number of available therapists that are open to the public? Or would they all just go into private practices and say, I, I, I'm not making enough money or, and you know, I, I can't, I'm, if I go into uh, public service, I'm never going to be able to pay this off. I'm going to be paying it, the interest for the rest of my yeah. life. It most definitely will. Um, because the private sector, the private sector can't cover this type of public service. Um, because the private sector, your end goal is to make money. And if you're talking about private sector jobs in the public ser- in public service, that means you are, you know, commoditizing and building capital and be, uh, making capital off of people. Um, so if you're a therapist in the inner city of Chicago dealing with the trauma that is going on on a daily basis that is systematic and purposeful, um, you're going to get paid a decent wage. Is it enough to cover the minimum six years of schooling that you had to pay that? Definitely not, especially not if you're a millennial or even younger and you've just graduated. You're not going to be able to make ends meet with some of these payment plans just because it takes such a large chunk out of your, quote, disposable income. And how that's calculated is pretty basic. Um, it's it's here's your gross adjusted income. Ten percent of that you should be able to make ends meet. Go mm. figure it out. Um, okay, so this would leave these sort of public sectors critically understaffed, right. and that's part of the point. Because if you get, uh, if you eliminate these public sector jobs, like if you wanted to do private probation, which is a thing in, in some of the Bible Belt states, um, uh, the governor of my state, Bruce Rauner, owns stock in some of these private sector probation companies. Um, you know, the CEOs and the upper management of these companies make a lot of money. Uh, more than your average deputy chief probation officer, probably. But you, what they do is they give you some training. You may or may not have a college diploma, but in order to give money back to their shareholders and in order to showcase growth, they have to keep their labor costs to a minimum. Um, and you can only get so much money from poor people. Uh, so if you are charging them probation fees and you lock people up if they don't pay them, well, you're not going to get your money. But that's how you would fill the gap when everybody quits because they can't afford um, to do this type of work. Uh, To be to be completely and perfectly honest, I firmly believe that you need to have an education. And the way we translate education these days is with a bachelor's degree. But you have to have a bachelor's degree or better in order to work with some of the kids that I work with, Mm. Um, because if you don't, you don't have the basics of human development. You don't under you, you can't write a report that helps ensure that young people get the treatment that they need. You are unable to synthesize the new research that comes out on how to work with young people, and you can't think and you can't do the critical work necessary to say this type of research doesn't work for our kids because it's not normed on the right group of kids. So um, this kind of hedge- higher education is critical to the sort of public sector jobs that we're talking about. I think I think in a very complicated world that we live in, where we're trying to solve significant issues, just saying that anybody could go do this work, that's not how it how we do it. You don't you know you don't go to somebody who describes himself as a doctor and then operates out of the backyard uh, the the parking lot of a Kentucky Fried Chicken to do brain surgery. I mean that might work uh, for. He lost somebody, his name. somebody who's really hungry. It <laughs> might work for Ben Carson. That's racist. I'm not going to say that. Um, it might work for some people, but it's not going to work uh, for people that recognize that people doing brain surgery outside of a parking lot are probably not the best fit for this type of a degree. And in order to be a doctor, in order to be an engineer, in order to be a carpenter, you need to call yourself a carpenter, you need an education. So just saying the private sector will fill the gap or public donations will fill it like, no, we need actual solutions because what we're doing is not showing or we're not really thinking about it strategically. At best, we're thinking tactically about these types of issues. Okay. Um, So as far as 
coming up with a solution goes. Let's let's uh, let's bang out some numbers real quick, um, mm-hmm. just to give people at home um, a bit of a, a guidepost on this. So we did some we did some research. Um, Marty and I found out that in 2016 dollars, tuition, room, and board for four years worth of school, just in general across the country, um, went up from seventeen thousand three hundred and eighteen dollars in uh, 1971 to 1972 money to forty five thousand three hundred and sixty five dollars in 2016 2017 money that's an increase of twenty eight thousand forty seven dollars it's a two hundred and sixty two percent increase for all of our Pennsylvania listeners you pen tuition um, went up from uh, forty-three and a half grand, give or take, between twenty ten and twenty eleven, to fifty-five thousand dollars between twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen. That's eleven and a half grand, hundred and twenty-six percent increase uh, that we're dealing with uh, here at home. And there have been some efforts in Pennsylvania to freeze tuition. There was a bill in 2016, just before the election, that would have frozen tuition uh, for in-state tuition, I believe, for five years. That is currently in the House Education Committee, and it has not moved since. Um, Marty, what's been happening in uh, Indiana? I'm sorry, Indiana, Illinois. Yeah, well, you might as well say Indiana. Like At this <laughs> point, we're just as bad. Um, so Illinois is a special case. Um, The second most corrupt state in the country, second only to Louisiana, and Louisiana is doing yeoman's work in public corruption. Um, But in 2010, the University of Illinois at Chicago's in-state tuition was $5,000. Now, the University of Illinois Chicago 2017 tuition and fees is $30,000. That is a six-fold increase. What makes us a special case is that um, we haven't had a budget in the state of Illinois mm. since 2014 oh dear. or maybe 2015. Our, our governor, Bruce Rauner, who is a multimillionaire, billionaire possibly, who is a lot like Donald Trump but is actually more intelligent than the Donald, mm. uh, he and the Democrats that control the state legislature have not been able to put a budget together for two years. Um, this leads to my number one argument, like one of the major reasons for tuition increases of this dramatic nature has been a lack of state funding. Mm. States have cut and cut and cut the amount of money that they've been giving to, to their departments of higher education for forever. I do also want to make one other small point here in the research that we did from the Washington, I'll make sure you have, you can post this on your show notes on your website. Um, There aren't a lot of good studies on this because the Department of Education's uh, public – actually publications are not very good uh, Mm. and are very difficult for the layman to follow. They – but there are some universally accepted at this point uh, truths, which I should warn everybody because I'm saying it's universally selected – People like to cherry pick and say, aha, but this person disagrees, kind of like climate science. Mm. Um, the experts agree what the re- what one of the major reasons is. And the major reason is states are not paying universities and colleges what they used to. Um, and we're talking about public nonprofit universities. But when we talk about higher education, we have aggregated th- the whole thing. So you're getting everything from the University of Illinois at Chicago to Beloit College, my small private liberal arts college in Wisconsin, to Harvard, which is a private research institution, to Trump University, which was a fraudulent for-profit university that uh, our current sitting president has had to pay $26 million for because it was so fraudulent. But I would lump any for-profit university in at that level. Okay, so so – Combining all of that complicates the numbers. So you have to disaggregate and mm. focus on like what's going on here and what's going on there. And 538 did a, an amazing job of a case study on Temple University in the great state of Pennsylvania that pulled all the data from their own tuition numbers um, and showcases this as, as a case study that is representative of the entire higher education crisis. Um, mm. 
when a state when states cut back on the money that they're giving, the only place uh, schools are typically going to, the number one place they're going to, is a tuition increase. Um, the 538 article details how, like, even other causes that um, have frequently been cited as the reason for this state increase uh, don't add up to the amount. Um, but once you factor in tuition, not, uh, excuse me, once you factor in the lack of state funding, that's why we're here. Okay. Um, so what can what can we realistically do about this? You know, we're always trying to to find solutions as much mm-hmm. as we can on this show and try to empower people and try to, you know, make them um, as aware as we can about what they can do to change the situation surrounding whatever problem it is, you know, whatever apocalypse we're facing in a given week. Right. Um, right. In Trump adjusted terms, one day is a year. So mm-hmm. we are, you know, so here's how we can do it. Um, first, quick diversion from our the plan that we've been working on sure. i think at we can take a page from the indivisible guide and target make your group and target your you know senator and your representative uh to push back against the trump education budget and plan okay um target them there but more effective given that this is a state issue everybody needs to find out who their state senators and who their state representatives are. Hmm. So not your federal reps, but your state people and get them to commit to increasing education funding and higher education funding of um, that works. Um, And if you want to tie it to metrics, make sure it's not a metric that turns a young person into a commodity. I mean, this idea that education is a business that we have to profit off of is a is a cold, heartless, and in the end of the day, inaccurate representation of what education is. Education is not a is not a privilege. Education is a right, and we have decided that uh, every young person in the country should be able to read, write, and, th- cre- and think critically. And as we continue to automate, you're going to need more young people and more people in general who are able to think at higher, more abstract levels to make a living. Uh, you can already, you know, get a perfect shot of espresso from the Clover machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have a robot do security work. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors are in danger of being outpaced by robots and robot surgeons. Um, it's only a matter of time before automation targets therapists and probation officers or targets uh, with self-learning algorithms targeting everybody but game developers and even then you can have a video games designing themselves um in order for us to actually advance as an economy we're going to need to fund people and fund education uh because it gives back to the public good so we can figure out how to address the increasing automation process um this is what we need to do focus on their state legislators and our state legislate uh Focus on our state legislators to make sure that uh, people get a quality education okay. um, and, not, and not refer to it as like your investment and what the return on your investment is because we're not talking about trading fucking pork bellies. We're talking about making sure that young people can identify the difference between psychosis, neurosis, uh, operant conditioning and the difference between R and C or C plus plus or C hash. So that's what we're talking about. Not the future of pork bellies, but the future of human development and making the world a better place. Okay. Now I, I am going to say that I can, I actually heard Tony screaming from where he's at on vacation. (laughs) When you said that education is a right. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think he's, I think he's come out against that if not in the last episode we had then i'm i would bet the farm that he said it within the last five episodes that he doesn't think education is a right for various legal reasons okay um is 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 school mandated for people in pennsylvania to a certain age last time i checked like in in illinois at the age of 16 um which at the time that law was written 
you could get a good job at a factory without a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time my dad was in high school, you couldn't get a good job in a factory without the high school diploma. But once you got the high school diploma, you can get a good job at the factory. Mm-hmm. By the time uh, by the time my father had me, you weren't necessarily guaranteed a good job uh, with a high school diploma, but you're guaranteed a good job with a college degree. And by the time my father passed away in 2003, you weren't guaranteed a good job with a college degree, but you were guaranteed a good job with a master's degree. And by the, and by the time I met Dan, you weren't guaranteed a good job. <laughs> now we're not guaranteed anything. <laughs> right? We're not guaranteed any of these things, but we have been told that we are. And also, for the, I will pull back to the founding documents, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One cannot pursue happiness without the ability to earn a living. If you can't, you can't earn a living in this country without an education, period, point blank. We all know that. For that very reason, uh, in order for us to pursue happiness, a, a founding document given right of our people, then people need to be educated. Also, for the functioning of a democracy, you need an educated populace. Otherwise, you get what you have now um, or worse. So for a functioning democracy, you need educated people. If you make education a privilege that only the wealthy few can take or the people that sacrifice everything so that they can get it, well, now we're in a situation of an of a default and de facto oligarchy, which is something that the founders of the country tried to eliminate by instituting the estate tax, which is erroneously labeled by Republicans as a death tax. The fact of the matter is, in a modern democracy, education and health care have to be considered rights. Mm. People have a and because people have a right to be able to live and learn and to be able to earn a living. How do you earn a living without an education in the twenty first century? The answer is you don't. You can't make a business plan without an education. You can't even figure out who to vote for without a sixth grade reading level. So in order for us to function, to commoditize a right is despicable. It is money grubbing of the highest order. It is an idea of placing capital over the lives of other people. And if you want to float that way, by all means, do that, but don't come at me like you're a good person to say that this is how it's going to raise the bar for everybody. Because you can't – the number one way to control your costs is to, is to destroy your labor to, so you, or to automate your labor. Um, this is why uh, – this is you know, how CEOs get their golden parachutes because they cut their labor forces so they can give back uh, their dividends to the shareholders because their labor costs go down and pr- productivity goes up. That's not how education works. That's not – there's no pursuit of happiness when you have commoditized the basic right of education. Gotcha. So you're saying that implicit to the pursuit of happiness guaranteed to us, that Mm -hmm. in order for there to be a realistic pursuit, one must be educated. I agree. And uh, we have, this is not to say that every person needs to go to college. It's not what I'm saying. Um, I am saying within the system that we have created, that's how it, that's, we have deemed education to mean you have a certificate or you have a bachelor's degree. Okay. Um, I, I firmly believe that we should be doing more so that people post secondary have an opportunity to get uh, to get educated to do a career that they want. But that's not. But if. But that. And I think that's why that's a right. Because if you say it's a privilege, you are now saying that only the wealthy can have a good education, which means that only the wealthy have a right to participate in this country, which is, you know. Idiotous. Yeah, you can't say it's democracy. Okay. Right. So, um, we gotta we gotta move to a break. But the the quick rundown is: um, have your federal senator and congressperson um, take a stance against the Trump budget in general, but specifically their education plans. Have them stand up for the public service loan forgiveness. And then um, on a more close-to-home sort of an issue, we should all be looking for our state senators and either representatives or assemblymen. They go by different names in different states. Um, You look for your local legislators, essentially, and have them move to a state-by-state system that says we're going to fund our education properly because, you know, when we pay into education and the amount that society saves – down the road is greater than the costs that we're putting into it 
by increased taxes or this or that mm-hmm. or the other thing that it pays more that that is an investment if not individually you know each person's education education is a commoditized investment yes exactly perfect the, the, yeah all right uh well any closing thoughts before we uh before we go to break real quick uh there are so many reasons why tuition increases um be uh, dis- disingenuous. We didn't talk a little bit about administrative bloat and decreases in charitable giving since 2008. But the number one cause accepted by experts is a lack of state funding. And the way to fix it is to push our state legislators to fix, you know, state funding for education, including ensuring that people who don't want to go to college can have a good education because education is a right and Tony is wrong. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I'm going to get an earful when he gets back. Poo-poo! Shots fired! But Um, uh, thank you so much, Marty, for having this episode with us tonight. Love to have you back as soon as possible. Anytime. Um, Coming up next, we're going to be having the second half of our show with Nick Diulio. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about all this. But we will see you after the break. You are listening to Vigilant Radio. Hey everyone, I want to thank Marty again for filling in while Tony's out of town. Marty is a juvenile justice probation officer in Chicago and a regular host of the podcast All Comics Considered. He tweets at Officer Gleason, spelled G-L-E-A-S-O-N, and you should follow him because he has adorable dogs. Thanks for listening again, and now, back to the show. And we're back. Thank you for joining us tonight in the second half of Vigilant Radio's show. My name is Dan Cowder, and we are back with Nick Diulio. Nick, hello, hello. Very good, very good. The two uber-liberal heathens are here in uh, in Tony's absentia. Right? I, let me tell you, Marty, Marty showed how close to the middle I am, comparatively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> this could be way worse. Everybody that's right, right. like, ah, I'm too liberal. No, 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 no. You haven't tasted true liberal. Oh, God. <laughs> Until so you've true. listened to Marty. Oh, man. It's so true. Yeah. So, we're talking about, um, we're talking about education tonight, uh, as you heard in the first segment. Nick, um, what's, what's your personal connection to the education system, just for, uh, uh, to remind our listeners out there? Well, aside from the fact that I uh, am a product of the public education system, uh, I also am married to a uh, teacher, a K-8 to art teacher who works uh, in Atlantic City. And, um, you know, both of those things, my, my, my sort of uh, wokeness, if you will, <laughs> is, not, <clears throat> is not the exclusive uh, byproduct of marrying a, uh, a public school teacher because I was already thinking very deeply about the things we're going to talk about tonight mm-hmm. um, and feeling very passionate about those things. But once I, uh, once I really got into the weeds of it, uh, you know, in partnering with somebody who, who works in that system, it just, it, it, it turned the, the, uh, turned the knob up to 11 for me in terms gotcha. of, uh, you know, my investment in this. So, Okay, yeah. so that um, that dovetails nicely with the uh, the discussion that Marty and I were having in the last session because he was focused mostly on higher education and your passion is mostly in K to twelve. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so looking at the situation that we currently have in the K to twelve system, um, what are the big standout concerns that you have going forward over the next I don't know four years? Let's just say. Well, it's it's we're we are experiencing a what I what I hope, please, dear God, hope is a high water uh, mark of something that has been rising for a long time in conservative uh, American politics, which is that um, this notion that that we should be looking towards public institutions with private sector solutions and. That those public institutions should be moving more and more towards a private sector model where people have the choice of the free market and all the glories that capitalism brings uh, therewith. 
and public education is is suffering under the burden of that misguided philosophy in ways that we haven't seen before. And what I'm most concerned about is the, broadly speaking, the weakening of the public's faith in our public education system in favor of some anomalous future potential of public education, and again, K-12, to being run more like a business and um, and that and that the the problems with public education that currently exist and there there are problems. This is not a flawless system uh, by any means, but this 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 hair trigger response that the problems exist entirely because it is overly bureaucratic and. Um, is trying to be too many things to too many people, and we need to uh, tighten the focus the way a business would tighten its focus on demographics. Uh, and I, I just think it is it is very very um, dangerous, particularly to those in underserved communities. You know, communities that are already underserved, um, but even more broadly speaking, even to a, a place like uh, Medford or you know. Maple shade, or you know, pick your, you know, white upper class, hmm. upper middle class uh, example. Okay. I think that whole thing is really is a really dangerous uh, trend. Okay, so you are you are not in favor of the uh, the so called uh, commoditization of of education. We were talking about that in the last segment too. Right, and, um, Marty had quite a bit to say about that. Um, yeah, that yeah, you're not <clears throat> viewing this so much as a um, as a private sector compatible solution at least not no. in so far as it's being presented by the republican party today absolutely not and th- this reminds me actually it- it's funny we are talking k-12 to but it reminds me of an anecdote from my freshman year of college mm-hmm. uh, and i w- went to an assembly i went to eastern college for a year now eastern university um in st david's and they had the president at the time, president of Drexel come and give uh, a, a talk to the students and faculty there. And he was this really inspiring, you know, Drexel has since gone on to be uh, this really sort of shining uh, city on a hill that so many higher institutions are, are trying to emulate for better or worse. Mm-hmm. And it began around this time. This was like 2001, uh, 2000, 2001 uh, with this guy, uh, Constantine Papadakis and his perspective, and and he gave this whole talk about how universities are a business, and the students are the customers, and the faculty uh, and administration are the employees. And I'm just sitting there as this naive 18 year old, thinking like, oh well, that's interesting. And I remember getting back to class later that afternoon, and my professor. I went to my philosophy class. My professor was so furious about this talk and i didn't fully understand why i couldn't understand why he was so upset by somebody modeling education as a business and it took me years i mean arguably until the last few years of my life Mm. to understand why that's a problem and and it's a problem because the the aim of a business and this was touched on you were talking about with uh you were talking about this with marty you know, the aim of a private business is to make money. And, and I'm not casting dispersions on or aspersions on that notion in, intrinsically. I, I, I don't necessarily think that is intrinsically a bad thing for a, a private business to do. Um, but the idea is to make profits, to, to make money. And you do that at the expense of so many other things that just don't factor in to a public institution. The, the primary goal of a public institution like an elementary school or a high school or a middle school is not to make money. Mm. It is to educate uh, as many children as best you can. And that goal will inevitably run into inherent contradictions with a philosophy that profit is the motivator and and that making money is the motivating factor so so yeah i think it's it's incredibly dangerous to think of education that way so the product of a good public school system you're saying then like 
profitability shouldn't even be in that equation. That it, I mean, that's almost uh, from what you're sounding like you're saying to you know to complain about the profitability um, of a public school system would be almost as ridiculous as to complain about the fact that my car can't make adequate apple pie. Like it doesn't even. <laughs> Like, it doesn't even sound like that makes right. sense, you know? It's like, well, of it's course it doesn't make moment. apple pie. That's not its job. It's supposed to get you from A to B. Yeah. I think that's that's a that's a really great analogy. And it it, it ties into another aspect of this as well. Uh, interestingly enough, I was talking to Sydney about this concept. We're, we're sort of forever talking about this. Um, but most recently, we were talking about this very thing of the – the inherent conflict between the goal of profitability and the goal of public institutions like uh, public schools. And she brought up a fascinating point, which is that a business, a, a private sector business, typically has a very narrow demographic concern and a very narrow uh, concern for what it is trying to sell. Even a major company something massive like McDonald's or Coca-Cola can be hyper-focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is get people to buy our soda, get people to buy our shitty food. And when it comes to something like uh, you know, K-12 education in this country, you don't have the luxury of that precision point focus on, you know, what you're trying to sell and to whom you're trying to sell it. Because a company like Coca-Cola can say, eh, you know what? 25% of the country doesn't buy Coca-Cola. Who gives a shit? We're still making tons of money on the remaining 75%. Right, but, but the goal you, yeah. of an institution isn't the same. You know? If you say that about, you know, while we're educating 75% of the population, 25% are completely illiterate, then you right. have a, a much different problem on your hands than exactly. people don't like to drink Coke. Right, um, right. Exactly. So in this in this situation, you know, we have Republican president, um, we have, you know, Republican House, Republican Senate, and you know, they are proposing a whole bunch of different things. You know, the budget just came out a little bit ago, healthcare's been a thing. But education, as proposed by Betsy DeVos, is different than in previous administrations because they are really, really pushing um, this school choice idea, and um, inherently with that, and explicitly with that, is uh, Betsy DeVos's, um, I don't want to say brainchild, she certainly didn't come up with it, um, but her pet project, I suppose, it would be, um, if you consider a you know, multi-billion dollar industry a pet project. Um, charter schools is what right. we're talking about. You know, um, schools that are... Um, you know, they pick their own um, attendance. You know, they don't have to accept somebody that they don't like. Um, and they are supposedly very focused on, you know, like, well, this charter school is um, is a college prep charter school. So we're going to make sure that, you know, 99% of all our students, 100% of all our students get accepted into at least um, one college. Um, my own wife, who's a teacher, you know, was working in a charter school of that nature. And it was okay i guess um they served the students as best they could but um a lot of what was is she still working in one now or no. she was working no, in was the working charter in school. charter school um but a lot of the concern with them is that even though on paper it's like oh yeah you know we're gonna have a charter school that's focused on this and a charter school that's focused on that and maybe a charter school that's generalist and you know you can use your school choice and your voucher or whatever else to pick where you want your kid to go and then they can specialize in the thing they're interested in and boom they'll be super prepared for whatever it is they want to go into at college mm-hmm. um or you know in the trades if you have a trade school focused um charter school i suppose but that's you know that that always that gets back to the um the saying about theory and practice you know in mm-hmm. theory theory and practice are the same thing in practice <laughs> they're not um so yeah since charter schools focus so prominently since they have such a center stage role in the Donald Trump Betsy DeVos education plan what are some of the concerns you have with them specifically 
Well, you know, I and <clears throat> I, I certainly, I definitely don't want to. I want to make sure that I'm on the record as as um, clearly stating I am by no means an expert on charter schools. Sure. I um, I've written a few articles about different charter schools uh, in a few different underserved cities: Wilmington in Delaware, uh, Camden. Uh, there's one other one that I'm I'm blanking on right now, but and and there are a lot of things to recommend them. There, I, this is it's not as though you know the the experience I've had with charter schools has been uniformly uh, bad, and I think there is what I've what I've come to feel is that there is a place for charter schools to play a role as a piece of the overall pie mm. um, in specialized circumstances. Um, and I think from what I know, again, tangentially, is that that was the, that those were the seeds of, uh, of charter, of the charter school movement, that they were meant as a, as a fractional alternative um, for the needs of, particular students, particular segments of the population, what they've become, even though though even though people in charge of charter schools will not say this outright, what they've what they've clearly become is a competitor to the public education model. And uh, and and I think that is where the problem begins because even if charter schools are doing uh, are, are are doing some good things in terms of education and perhaps experimenting with some some education models and some structural models that that the public sector the non-charter public sector I should say because charter schools are still under the umbrella of public schools broadly mm-hmm. speaking um, even if they're able to to make some strides I, I'm really, really skeptical um, of the the notion that they're presenting a competitive difference to public education, and that when you get into and I don't know if uh, if your wife has you know talked to you at all about some of the the almost cult like hmm. uh, dedication to charter school missions. Um, I have some other friends and, and acquaintances who have been involved in large charter organizations where you attend conferences that instill a, a type of ethos that is so uh, exclusive to itself that it does begin to feel, you know, cult-like or church-like. Oh that this is not in any sort of not in any kind of religious way, you know, specifically. I mean, just that there's this narrative that's reinforced like we are doing it the right way and those who buy into that system buy into it at the exclusion of any uh, any alternative and that means the non-charter public schools that might surround that community and so in in as much as it erodes the public's trust in public education i think that's a bad thing also another aspect of it um that uh that we were chatting about before uh before we jumped here that um, oftentimes charter schools will just by nature of what they are, they will wind up skimming from the top, uh, percentage of students who are performing mm. the best in underserved communities. So if you have a school that opens in a place like Trenton or Newark, um, you know, an underserved population, that charter school is by nature going to attract students who have the most engaged parents and guardians already that are already excelling in the work they're doing in their public school, uh, but are feeling stifled by the, you know, socioeconomic conditions that are making it hard for them to succeed in their public school. So you're going to pull out some of the best students that exist in those public schools. And then the charter school can then say after a few years, Hey, look how great we're doing. We've got a 98% graduation rate and we've got, scores that are blowing you guys out of the water so look how much better our model is than you you know uh you know you 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 floundering public schools Mm. um 
we're doing so much better. But it's a false equivalency. It's not it's not actual. So, you know, those are the two two problems that I see most blatantly. And this, of course, um, in the skimming of these exceptional students or these highest um, performing students, the charters, which are still under the purveyance of quote unquote public schools, um, who don't have to take a kid they don't necessarily want, um, except mm-hmm. in certain cases, but that's certainly the minority. Um, where do all the kids that don't get picked go? You know, I mean, this is like this is like kickball. Where do the mm-hmm. leftover kids go? If they're stuck in what remains of the public school system, which are now underfunded because they have to share public taxpayer dollars with the charters, right? the public schools that are left with the kids that need the most attention, need the most specialized care to reach their full potential, these kids are now yeah. being served by a crop of teachers who might be trying their best, but who are probably overworked, underpaid, their classrooms are likely enormous because these charter schools can be pretty small. Mm-hmm. You know, these charter schools can be extremely selective. I, th- I think that um, the school that my wife had might might have had 100 kids. Mm. Not 9th through 12th grade, right, 100 right. kids. Like, are, are you for real? Right. Um, and so anybody that doesn't get picked, any kid that doesn't get picked to attend one of these charters now has to be in the overcrowded school for, I mean, what really ends up being the leftover kids. Right. And they are now underserved, which the charters can then use to reinforce their own message of, oh, well, the public schools can't compete with us. Well, of course they can't compete with you. You took all the highest performing kids. You're taking their money. And you don't even have a whole lot of accountability. Right. Either. I mean, this is one of the, the largest criticisms of um, of charter schools is that there is not the same level of oversight with them as there are um with traditional public schools. I mean, the Washington Post has done um, exposés about teachers that were, I'm sorry, uh, not teachers, yeah, right, um, administrators that were running small um, charter chains that were making $600,000 a year salaries or being given $400,000 sign-on bonuses. Yeah. Um, that first one, $600,000 a year salary, Eva Moskowitz up in, um, up in New York, like, th- there's literally nothing that they will do that is worth $600,000. That's absurd. Um, yeah. But yet, here we are. Yeah. And they can, ju- and then th- they can just shut down. These schools can just close. Oh, sure. Bit, right. And the person, you know, the administrators, the, um, the board can move on to another school elsewhere, set up shop, do the whole same thing again. Just like a, just like a private business, man. Right. You know, private, a private business can just choose to, hey, look, you know what? We're not profitable anymore. Uh, We're out of here. To X number of issues. We're yeah. out of here. Deuces. And you can sure. That's the brutalism of, of capitalism. But, you know, if that's what you want for your child's education that's what you're going to get you're going to get this you know the freedom to set your own rules but also the freedom for those at the top to you know to bail uh you know often as a result of all sorts of problems of accountability you know and again this is not to i want to just state it clearly this is not to say that everyone involved in the charter system and those who uh, from from administrators on down are that it's a bad thing i know i've i've experienced uh charter school founders and principals and teachers who have amazing intentions and who have who have done great things and and who have produced some really phenomenal students uh and and accomplishments in education um so it's not to say that the, that the whole notion is inherently bad, but the way it's being utilized as a political tool in this larger conversation about education is, uh, I think, and ultimately is is a uh, is a detrimental direction in which you know to head when it when it comes to uh, to all this stuff. That's. That's where it's really, uh, really a problem. That's an excellent point. Um, and I, I think that's a, a great point to start wrapping up on. Just the idea that there are certainly charter schools out there that are good, that do good for their kids, that have the best 
intentions for their communities at heart. The idea is not that we're sitting here trying to, you know, come down and start roasting on those particular schools. Mm-hmm. The idea is that um, this system is not currently set up in good faith. And so while there may be individual charter schools that are doing a lot of good for their communities, that are, you know, stable um, institutions within their community, so they're not just in there for eight years and they bail, um, you know, that these sorts of schools, when charter schools or something like them does good for the community, the system is set up to encourage that. Not so that the system is set up to encourage, you know, um, corporate pillaging of a community. And then these good charter schools are the rare exception. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this goes back to um, Betsy DeVos, is that even though there might be good, you know, CEOs out there that are running charter schools, there might be good boards of administrators, there might be good principals, there are certainly plenty of good teachers. In the charter school system, the person pushing it, the person heading it, the person that's currently shaping the Department of Education's policy about charter schools is not acting in faith, cannot be trusted, and is clearly engaging in a cash grab. Which, I mean, Marty touched on this as far as uh, Betsy DeVos's brother, um, Eric Price, I think his name is. The the entire family is just a, a money-grabbing cash grab. Yeah, um, and also, so, and and, and also, I, I would be miss. I mean, <laughs> you provided a nice little, a nice little uh, uh, window in, into one other thing that I, I think does need to sure, be sure. touched on, albeit briefly, which is the uh, that there is a religious component to oh, yes. um, this conversation, and that there is there's a segment of this of of the American uh, population that greatly resents. Uh, the secularization of the public school system, and uh, true. wrongly, uh, I, I, I can state uh, fairly with with a great deal of certainty, wrongly resents the secularization of public education, and there is a component of this move towards uh, fracturing the public, our faith in public education, because of religious. Uh, concerns, and and I want to say almost exclusively Christian religious concerns, but I there are pockets of uh, there there are some some aspects of of uh, uh, of Judaism that do play into this in very very select communities. Right, that's almost an entirely different topic in and of itself. But in terms of for the sake of this conversation and for the sake of the people that that um, put Trump. Into in the White House right. and support Betsy DeVos. There is a, a a hard push towards wanting public funding to be available for uh, religious education More and fundamentalist teachings. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Which goes absolutely. right back to the lack of oversight, because normally in public schools that would typically not fly. But if right, there's no oversight, and it shouldn't. Of right. course, it shouldn't fly. But there you have it. I mean, it's. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, that that is that is also another motivator and it's and you can see it throughout the whole paper trail of Betsy DeVos's oh, yeah. family and her rise to power and and the the organizations that they've supported and and the initiatives that they've supported um are just far too um you know theocratic in nature for for me to be comfortable with and I I would I would think for a, a large majority of our listening uh listening segment to be comfortable with but i would agree with that yeah um do you have any social media that you want to plug um do you want to i mean you mentioned um articles that you write earlier do you want to point people towards where you're writing these days anything like that well you know i i I think i'll point people to my website which is a repository for most of the stuff i write uh nickdiulio.com n-i-c-k-d-i ulio.com and uh, you know you'll find the majority of things that I write at least the things that I'm most proud of <laughs> on uh, on my site and also that the uh, that's my Twitter handle too I was lucky enough to to grab the enviable at Nick Diulio for Twitter a lot of competition for that oh yeah so much competition. <laughs> so much competition you wouldn't believe excellent so excellent yeah. excellent well Nick Thank you once again for joining us tonight in this um, in this uh, two part 
this two-part show tonight. Here, here. I can't wait to hear Tony's exploits from the Socialist Republic of the United Kingdom. Oh, and... my goodness. Did you see he's, like, drinking in a sewer or something? I, I saw his. I, I don't know where he's at. God knows. I saw that. Uh, yeah, I saw the post from that. That yeah, it's like the oldest, the oldest uh, yeah. tavern in 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 the UK, and it it looked, it looked vaguely tunnelish. I mean, like a a very hip sewer. I mean, a very you know, a very very stylish little 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 sewer sewer place. I'm sure he's having a great time. I'm and, sure he is. Uh, we anxiously yeah, I, await his return. Yeah. Yes, All right. Indeed. Well, sir, thank you once again to everyone listening in tonight. Thank you very much. Um, We should have this posted tomorrow morning. That'll be on the 31st. Um, Anyway, my co-host, Nick DiIulio. My name is Dan Cowder. This is Vigilant Radio. And remember, stay vigilant, everybody. Here, here.